the power goes out, we'll just truck right through. I don't even think that I need this microphone. I'm such a loud mouth, you could probably hear me without it. So don't worry, if the mic goes out, we'll be all good. Power goes out, we'll be okay. Probably better for you anyway, you ain't gotta stare at me, you can just see darkness and then just hear my voice. Might be a little bit better for you. I do invite your attention to the book of John, specifically chapter five, where our scripture reading came from just a moment ago. This is where we're going to focus our attention together this evening. Studies like what we're about to do are always very, very interesting to me because they're going through chapters, they're going through accounts, through quote-unquote what we might call stories of things that have happened, of things that we know about, we read about them, we understand that they're there in the text, but how often do we actually study events like this? And my guess would be not too often. But the more and more that I study this event that happens here in John chapter 5 this week, the more and more I came to appreciate uh, what it plays in Jesus' ministry while he was here on this earth, and obviously what it, how it plays out for this man here at the pool of Bethsaida. What I want to do as we go through John chapter 5 is I want to look at a little bit of history behind the pool of Bethsaida, a little bit of context as to what's going on, and then we're going to draw four different applications from this text. Again, a text that was written some thousands of years ago. How can we make it apply to us today as 21st century Christians? That's what we're going to do, and then we will offer the Lord's invitation and the sermon will be yours this evening. If you were to look at a map and you were to find the Pool of Bethsaida, you would notice that it lies just north of where the city of Jerusalem was. In order to get to the pool, you had to go by what is called the Sheep Gate. You read about that there in verse 2. This is where people would simply take their sheep to go and be sacrificed. Nothing more than that. Very, very simple. Surrounding this pool, if you were to look at a picture of it um, on Google, you could see that there were five giant pillars or five giant columns that stand right where this pool was. And what people would do is they would commune around these, these columns of this pool and they would wait, as the text says, for the waters to stir, for the waters to move. Now this is really, really interesting if you were to study some of, some of the background of this. People of that day, they thought that the pool had special healing powers within its waters. And from that idea comes the name Pool of Bethsaida because it means the house of kindness or the house of mercy. And so folks would gather together at this pool and what they say would happen is that an angel would come down and it would touch the waters, it would stir the waters, it would ripple and make the waters move, and that whoever first touched the water, they would say after that happened, they would immediately be healed and they would be able to go on their way and they would be able to live a normal life. Now, there's a lot of debate over that. There's a lot of debate about what actually happened at the pool of Bethsaida. There are a lot of people who believe that the idea of this angel coming down and touching the waters, there's a lot of people who believe that that really didn't happen. That it be kind of came just like an old tale and people would pass it down from generation to generation and that's just how we got it today. There are some who say that the pool was actually a natural spring and that from the pool, uh, the spring would sometimes move and it would ripple the waters on its own, causing the waters to stir and that was all that there was to it and that the water itself helped in the healing process of some of those individuals who were in the water, and that a lot of it was just in the people's minds and it was just made up in that story. Now, interestingly enough, if you go back to some of the older manuscripts, and if you are someone who studies out of the American Standard Version, the ASV, you'll find in that text that at the end of verse 3 and the end of verse 4, it's not in the ASV. 
the writers of the, the translators for the American Standard actually completely omit or deplete, don't put it in there, the very end of verse 3 and all of verse 4 because they believe that there's not enough sufficient evidence in the older manuscripts to deem it that, that it actually happened and that it should be in the Bible today. However, at least in my mind and in some minds of others, it, to me, there's kind of a flaw when you, when you look at it that way because if you look at verse 7 of John chapter 5, it talks about what? The moving and the stirring of the waters, doesn't it? It talks about it again, and that verse is never disputed. Verse 7 is never looked at and said, hey, this shouldn't have happened. There's no way that this could have happened. It's never, ever once argued or talked about how verse 7 shouldn't be there. And verse 7 would actually make no sense whatsoever if verse 3 and verse 4 were completely omitted. And so at least in my mind, it seems like a little bit of inconsistency there. And in fact, if you, again, if you go back to history, if you look at some of Tertullian's writers, Tertullian was one of the oldest and one of the most prolific Christian authors um, back in the first century. He cites that Scripture does have verse 3 and verse 4 in the manuscripts. And if you look at people who accept the really old manuscripts, they happily prove that verse 3 and verse 4 are there in the text. So I guess the question for us is where do we land? Where do we land in this kind of debate or conversation? Well, Honestly, that's up to you. We know that God works in ways that are, according to Isaiah 55 and verse 9, higher than our ways. He works in ways and His thoughts are, are higher than our thoughts. And so God certainly acts in, in, in times and in ways that we just really can't always comprehend. That we can't always understand the nature of God's wisdom and what He's doing. He is so far above us that we simply don't understand everything that God does. Could God have sent down an angel to stir the waters? Absolutely, he could have. And to say that he couldn't is really kind of dis it's disrespectful to God and the powers that he has. Now, with all of that being said, does that mean that we 100% know that this happened? Does it mean that we 100% know that it didn't happen? It doesn't. So we have to be okay in some situations, I think, when you read the text of simply not knowing. You have to be able to understand that there are some details that we just simply don't know. But here's the thing. Situations like this, it doesn't pertain to salvation, does it? It doesn't change the outcome of the account. There certainly are bigger things to focus on when you read John chapter 5, and that's what we're going to do this evening. What we do know, though, is as we go through this text of this particular occasion, the power most certainly was not in the water, but it was in the Word, wasn't it? It was in the words of Jesus Christ and what He spoke, and we're going to see that as we go through. Now, another debate we could bring up is that of the infirmity or the disease, the, 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 the problem that this man had that's talked about here in John chapter 5. What was wrong with him? The text never says. We really don't know. But we can come to some conclusions. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, the Bible says, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity, for 38 years, 38 years, and we're going to talk about that idea here in just a little while. So we know that there was obviously something with this individual. He wouldn't be at the pool if there wasn't. Go down to verse 7 again. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me in the pool. And so I think that we can correctly assume that he had something wrong with his legs. Maybe a lot, there's a lot of people who think that he was a paralytic. Maybe he had some kind of deformity. We simply don't know. But again, it has no weight or bearing on the outcome of the situation and the account and the lessons from which we will draw. And so it really bears no matter. It doesn't hold much weight to debate something like that. So that brings us to our text. I want to read it this evening, and I hope you follow along. And then we're going to dive in. We're going to draw out those four applications, and then we will be finished for this evening. John chapter 5, look with me here, beginning in verse 1. 
The Bible says, And after this there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethsaida, having five porches. In these lay a great multitude of sick people, blind, lame, paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool and stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first, after the stirring of the water, was made well of whatever disease he had. Now a certain man who was there who had an infirmity for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already had been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, rise, take up your bed and walk. And immediately the man was made well, took up his bed and walked, and that day was the Sabbath. Verse 10, the Jews therefore said to him who was cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. He answered them, he who made me well said to me, take up your bed and walk. Then they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? But the one who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn a multitude being in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you have been made well. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon you. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. I want to look at four different words that we can draw from this text. Four different words. They all start with the letter D. A little bit of alliteration for you this evening to hopefully help you remember these. And then we will offer the Lord's invitation. The first one is this. I want you to think about the word disease. I want you to think about the word disease. When you think about the pool of Bethsaida, I want you to picture yourself, I want you to imagine yourself, this picture in your mind of of standing in the midst of something like an outdoor nursing home. A place, an outdoor place where everyone who is there is unhealthy. Everyone who is having some kind of health issue, some kind of struggle, some kind of ailment, they are all gathering together. I want you to imagine a place in your mind where the diseased, the maimed, the sick, the dying, the hurting, those who are experiencing any kind of health hardship or mental hardship or any kind of ailment, a place where they all gather together. I want you to picture yourself gathering with them, standing in the midst, sitting at the foot of this pool called Bethsaida. And there are those five pillars, many people hanging onto those pillars, they're crying out. They're groaning in pain, they're suffering, they're in agony. They're sitting there for days, for months. Some even sit there for years. They're clinging on to that hope. And that maybe one day, they would be one of the ones to be able to touch that water and perhaps be healed. And that somehow, in some way, they would be able to experience the health and the healing that they so desire to have so that they can go on and live their lives as they once used to. You know, for some people, it would be to get back to the health that they once used to have in this life. The lives that they used to be able to live before their infirmity or before their disease that they had. The ability to live and to act as they once used to be able to do. How horrible is it for someone to have that instantly stripped away from them, regardless of, regardless of the cause, regardless of the outcome, how difficult that must be to be able to experience life, to understand everything that life offers you, and then to have it all stripped away. To see those people pass by. To see those people in the streets knowing that they're getting to do all the things that you once used to be able to do, but now because of your health, whatever it might be, you can no longer do that. 
Or maybe you're someone who's lying there and you've never known anything else but that. From birth, you've never known what it felt like to walk. From birth, you've never known what it felt like to see or to hear. Or maybe you have some kind of deformity or mental struggle and you've never, ever been able to get past it. Regardless, there you sit with everyone else hoping, praying that by some small chance that maybe one day you would have an opportunity to live your life to the fullest just like everybody around you. You know, in our day and age, and especially with what's gone on over the last couple of years, I think we would tend to avoid a place like that, wouldn't we? Maybe not necessarily places like nursing homes or hospitals, but if there was a place like the Pool of Bethsaida in our world today, places like that no doubt infested with germs and disease and sickness and ailments, I think so many times we would look at that place and we would think, I'm never going anywhere close to that. Places like that, we avoid like the plague, don't we? We don't want to put ourselves in any kind of unnecessary danger. We don't want to put ourselves in to have to take any kind of unnecessary risk that we don't have to in this life. And that's, in some sense, that's fine. I don't fault any of us for that. But I think about our Lord. I think about Jesus Christ while he was here on this earth. He didn't care about any of that, did he? His compassion, His love, His care for the people showed through all of that. This wasn't a place that people would go to hang out, was it? This wasn't a place that important officials or celebrities would go to spend their time. This wasn't a place for all the cool kids to go and hang out together once, every, once their day was over. It was a place that people avoided, and yet our Lord went where people didn't go. And I know that we're talking about this physically. I know we're talking about the, the diseases and those kinds of things of our physical lives. But what about spiritually? Let's talk about this spiritually for a moment. When we think about our world today, when we look out these doors and we look at our world today, it truly is like a spiritually sick nursing home or hospital out there, isn't it? This world is filled with people who are spiritually dying. This world is filled with people who are spiritually suffering from diseases and ailments. Those who are spiritually not growing. Those who are spiritually not getting better. What do we do? What is our reaction when we come into contact with people like that? Do we avoid them like the plague? Do we look at them and view those people as gross and as disgusting and as individuals who have no hope? Do we look at them and think, there's no way I'm getting anywhere close to you. Look at how spiritual I am. Look at how great I am. Look at my life and the things that I've done. You're nothing close to my level. Why in the world would I ever stoop down to be anything like you? Surely there were those in John chapter 5 who when they looked at the pool of Bethsaida, they certainly thought to themselves that they would never get anywhere close to that place. Surely there were those who thought, I'm too good for that sick place. I don't need to go anywhere close to those kinds of people. But you see, when we look at the pool of Bethsaida that's out in our world today, What do we think? When we look at the spiritually dying and the spiritually suffering and hurting in our world, what is our reaction? Because brethren, if that is our attitude, that we're better than those people who are around us, those who are spiritually dying and spiritually hurting, then brethren, let me tell you, we are no better than they are. What did Jesus say in John chapter 3 and verse 16? For God so loved who? The world. Until we come to an understanding and to an an acknowledgement That we too have room for growth. That we too have sin in our past. That we too could very well likely be in their shoes if we made the wrong decisions. That we are no more valuable and no more important than they are. We are in no better position than they are. The people were physically sick. They were fighting diseases right and left and Jesus didn't care. 
He walked among them. He went where the people didn't go. And He helped and He healed as He went. That's not to say that Jesus became like them. Jesus didn't become like them, but He went about helping them and healing them. Brethren, we ought to do all that we can for the sick that's around us. Physically, absolutely, but spiritually. We look at those in the world. We don't become like them, but we do all that we can to help them. We must do everything that we can to look at the spiritually lost and dying in this world. Do everything that we can to help them. Number two, the second word I want to look at from this text is the word dedication. The word dedication. Something that I have always found to be quite remarkable about this entire situation is this man's attitude towards everything that's going on in this situation. Think about this. For 38 years, for 38 years, this man has been battling this infirmity. For 38 years, this man has not known what it was like to live a normal life, to partake in the activities that most every single person around him was able to enjoy. And yet for 38 years, where did this man sit? At the pool that he hoped would heal him one day. For 38 years, what did this man long for? A normal, a healthy life. And for 38 years, what did he not lose? He didn't lose his hope. His hope that one day he would be healed. When I think about the man at the pool of Bethsaida, I think about the word dedication. Why? Well, let's think about it. If our assumption, if our research is correct, and this man was unable to get himself into the water, if he had some kind of something wrong with his legs, verse 7, the Bible says, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool. When the water stirred up, look what he says after that. He says, But while I'm coming, while someone's bringing me to the pool, what happens? Another steps down before me. He had to get someone to pick him up, to place him into the pool. And yet before he could ever reach the water, what had happened? Someone else had already gotten into the pool before him. Can you imagine? For 38 years, this man's life had been filled with disappointment after disappointment. The disappointment that he wasn't able to live his life to the fullest. The disappointment that he wasn't able to do the things with his family and with his friends. The disappointment that every time the water stirred, he knew that he would be unable to reach the waters first because he had to get somebody to pick him up and put him in there. For 38 years he tried, and for 38 years this man failed. The dedication of this man is truly remarkable to know that every single day he wakes up knowing his situation. Every single day he woke up knowing that his disease, his infirmity, whatever he had going on, was not going to go away. He knows he can't get himself in the pool. He knows that someone will always get in there before him. He knows that he's in a lose-lose situation. He knows he's going to fail every single time. And yet time and time again, he waits. And he hopes. And for 13,870 days, he hoped and he longed for that healing and for that relief. What if on that day that Jesus had come, he had decided to go somewhere else before he got there? What if on that day he had given up hope? What if he said, take me somewhere else, I don't want to be here? What if he said, for 38 years I've tried to do this and nothing's happened, just take me somewhere else? It would have been a completely different outcome, wouldn't it? That health that he so longed for, that health that he desired, it would never have been granted to him if it wasn't for his dedication. Now, I find this to be very interesting. If you look at verse 6 of John chapter 5, the Bible says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew, circle that word knew, or take a mental note, and knew that he already had been in that condition a long time. We're not told how Jesus knew this man, are we? We're not told how Jesus knew of his affliction. We're not told how long, how Jesus knew how long he had been, it had been ailing him. But that word knew is the Greek word ginosko. 
And it means to immediately know, to have an immediate perception, to immediately understand everything that's going on in this man's life. And so here we have Jesus, having never met this man before, having never talked to him before, having never seen him before, and immediately he comes to know everything that there is to know about this man. He immediately knew the history behind this man and everything that he had gone through in his life. It takes me back to his occasion at the well. Go back one chapter to John chapter 4, whenever Jesus was having that conversation with a woman at the well. And you remember that Samaritan woman began to tell Jesus all about her life, everything that was going on. And what did Jesus do? He said, you've said it correctly. And in fact, Jesus began to fill in the gaps of things that she had left out and things that she didn't tell him. The power that Jesus had to be able to know and to understand all the things that they had done. The power that Jesus has, that Jesus has now. The power that our Father has now to know everything that we have done in this life. Brethren, that ought to strike some fear in our hearts. That ought to make us straighten up, to listen up, and to do all that we can to faithfully serve Almighty God, I think back to Luke chapter 5. Jesus had just healed a paralytic in that situation. You remember, his friends couldn't get to Jesus, and so what did they do? They went up to the roof, and they cut that hole in the roof, and they lowered the man down, the paralytic down. Jesus was amazed at their faith, and He healed that man. And afterwards, you remember what, G, what the Pharisees' reaction was there in verse 21. The Bible says that they said, Who is this? Who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But then that very next verse, verse 22 of Luke chapter 5, the Bible says, but when Jesus perceived their thoughts, that Greek word is another form of the word gnosko. He came to a full acknowledgement. He understood everything that they were thinking, everything that was going through their hearts. He immediately knew what was going on. I'm simply amazed at the power that Jesus had. And I think back to that man at the pool of Bethsaida. How he came day by day, week by week, Year after year after year, understanding and knowing that he will probably never receive any kind of medical help. And yet the dedication and the determination put on display by this man. And surely Jesus knew that by seeing that in this life. When it comes to us as 21st century Christians, what's our attitude towards our faith? You see, if we're not dedicated, Christian, dedicated to our Christianity, then we will fail, won't we? If we're not willing to put forth the work and the diligence every single day, if we're not willing to show up day after day and week after week, even when life gets tough, we will fail as Christians. So how? How do we become better as dedicated Christians? How do we better ourselves as servants for God? Look back at verse 4. For an angel went down at a certain time into the pool, stirred up the water. Then whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Again, we can talk about our feelings, our interpretations of this verse. That's besides the point. But to me, this verse right here shows me of this man's belief. He believed that one day he was going to be healed. And that belief allowed him to come day after day, year after year. It allowed him to come face to face with the Savior, with that opportunity to have his health restored. If you want to be a dedicated Christian, your belief must be concrete. I think about what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. He's writing his first letter to the church at Thessalonica, and he says, For this reason... We also thank God without ceasing. Because when you received the word of God which you had heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, look at this, which also effectively works in you who believe. Look at verse 6 of John chapter 5. 
When Jesus saw him lying there, the Bible says, and knew, again, there's that word knew, that he had already been in that condition a long time. He said to him, do you want to be made well? What? Jesus, what a silly question. Of course he wants to be made well. Why are you asking him if he wants to be made well? Anybody who's sitting there for 38 years, of course they would want to be made well. Jesus isn't asking him if he wants to be healed. What is he doing? He's grabbing his attention, isn't he? Dedication requires focus and attention. If we are going to be truly dedicated, it requires our full attention on Jesus. Hebrews 12 and verse 2 sums it up very well, where the writer there says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Our dedication within Christianity can only be proven when our attention is on the Savior. What an example of dedication this man was to us. And I hope and I pray that we can be more and more like this every single day. Number three, the third word that I want to look at is the word division. The word division. There's a couple of things I want you to keep in mind as we go, as we go from this point in our study. I want you to take note of the process of everything that has happened. Keep in mind, look at verse 6. Jesus addressed the man who needed the healing. Look at verse 8. He commands him to take up his bed and walk. Verse 9, the man acts on the command, and then, and only then, is that healing handed out by Jesus. Keep in mind also this, the healing was immediate, was it not? The healing wasn't something that took time, was it? It wasn't something that took months of rehab and months of therapy. He didn't have to learn how to walk. He didn't have to learn how to balance. He didn't have to learn any of those things. He was immediately strong enough to pick up his mat, to pick up his bed, and to go. How beautiful of a picture that is. Our Lord certainly is the healer. But it is only through our obedience and our faith that we're able to gain that healing. Now, time and time again, as we talk about this word division, time and time again, we read throughout the Gospel accounts that it seems that wherever Jesus went, who followed Him? The religious leaders always showed up when Jesus was about to perform some kind of miracle, about to do some kind of teaching. The religious leaders were always there. Time and time and time again, they would question Jesus. They would test Jesus. They would try to trip Jesus up and entrap Him because they wanted the glory for themselves. And we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But I think back all throughout the Gospel accounts, I look at Matthew chapter 12 and Matthew 16, when they wanted a sign from Jesus. I think about Mark chapter 8. They began to argue with Jesus. We could go to Mark 22, Mark chapter 10, Luke 11, Luke 20, on and on and on we could go all throughout the New Testament of places where they tried to cause strife, where they tried to cause division among the people. And in John chapter 5, the situation there is no different. Look at verse 10. The Bible says, it is the Sabbath. This is what they're saying to Jesus, or rather to the man who has just been healed. It is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your bed. Now, Jewish leaders, hold on. It is not lawful. It's not lawful according to what? According to the law of Moses or according to your man-made traditions? Sure, the law of Moses forbade any kind of commercial or business work on the Sabbath. We understand that. Read Exodus 31, Numbers 15, Nehemiah 13, on and on and on throughout the Old Testament. You read about the Sabbath day and how we're supposed to keep it holy and not do any kind of work like that. But you begin to see, and this is the Pharisees did this over and over and over again. They interpreted the law to mean what they wanted it to mean. They were basing it all on this idea, as Brother Woods put it once, bald literalism and not on reasonable interpretation. And unfortunately, this was how they lived their lives. It was based off of their own interpretation of the law, and they formed it into what they wanted to hear. They eisegeted the law. They took out of it what they wanted, and they molded it into what they wanted to hear. And they simply lived their lives in a way that was pleasing to them and to no one else. I wonder... 
As I think about us today as Christians, as New Testament Christians, how many of us live with this kind of pharisaical attitude? This mindset of, I'll live however I want. I'll read the Bible. I'll take from it what I want. I'll form it into the way that I want to live so that, I, so that it agrees with me and I don't care what anyone else thinks. I'll keep some of the law. I'll follow some of the things that I like. Some of the things that are easy, I'll put those in. But man, those things that begin to intrude on my lifestyle, those things that begin to come into my life and say that I need to change something, those things, I don't want to follow those things. You want to cause division in the church? You live your life however you want to live it. That's exactly what all of the religious leaders did in Jesus' day. They didn't care about the law, did they? They didn't handle it with the care and the reverence and the respect that it deserved. All they cared about was the glory, the praise, and the honor of the men in that day. That's why in Matthew 23 and verse 5, the Bible says, but all their works they do what? To be seen of men. But brethren, that's so opposite of how a Christian ought to act. Matthew 5 and verse 16, Jonathan referenced it this morning. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father who is in heaven. Psalm 115 and verse 1, Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto you, unto your name, we give glory. Psalm 86 and verse 12, if there was a verse that was to sum up the life of a Christian, it's Psalm 86 and verse 12. I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all of my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Everything that we do in this life, we must do to the glory of Almighty God. And unlike the religious leaders of Jesus' day, we must allow the vision of others around us to bypass us and to go straight to the Father. It truly seems that the Pharisees really didn't care about the man at the pool, did they? It seems as if they didn't congratulate him on being healed. It seems as if they didn't come up and ask him how he's doing. They didn't ask how it happened. There was no rejoicing. There was no congratulating. All they cared about was figuring out who did it and how they could entrap him and stop him. They were so hungry for power. They were so hungry for glory that they didn't care about their fellow man. All they cared about was getting rid of the one who was drawing more attention than they. And that, brothers and sisters, is the fastest way to division in the church. We will divide the church. We will divide our relationships. We will divide us as brethren if we do not fight for unity among the brethren. I feel like I've, I have said this so much as of late, but it doesn't get any less true. If we are not doing all that we can, if we are not doing all that we can to build up and to edify the body of Christ, then we are a cause of tearing it apart. Let that not be said of us. Do not be someone who divides the church. Number four, the last one, and we'll go through this one fairly quickly, and then we will uh, end the sermon and we will offer the Lord's invitation. The word disappearance. I find this very interesting as I go through the gospel accounts and I look at Jesus' ministry. There were times during his ministry on this earth that he would often do something. He would perform some kind of miracle. He would teach some kind of profound idea. And then afterwards, he would simply disappear. Not a word to anyone as to where he was going. Not a warning to anyone that he was about to be gone. He was about to disappear. He was just gone. That's it. But I think it to be so fitting when we talk about Jesus Christ because that really was the epitome of who Christ was on this earth, wasn't it? He never did anything for personal notoriety, did he? He never did anything for his own personal gain. He never did anything to say, hey, look at me. I'm Jesus. I'm the Son of God. I'm better than all of you. He didn't act like the religious leaders in his day. Go back to the Greek language, the word ekneoyu, to convey 
to transport, to make himself blend in among everyone else. It seems that he just blended into the crowd. He became just like everyone else, everyone else around him. No one could find him and where he was because he didn't want the crowd. See, Jesus didn't want the attention, did he? He didn't want the fuss and the fame. He just simply did his work and he moved on. I think this somewhat goes hand in hand with our last point, doesn't it? This whole idea of not drawing attention to ourselves. Man, this world will be a whole lot of a better place if people just put their heads down, did their work, and then moved on, wouldn't it? One of the things that I'm grateful for here at East Hill is that there are so many individuals who do so many things. There are so many hard workers here who don't care about the glory. There are so many people here who don't care about having their name announced from the pulpit. They don't care about knowing whether or not they, other people knowing whether or not they did this or they did that. And for that, I'm thankful. And I hope that we all strive to be like that. Brethren, that's the kind of attitude that we need to have. The attitude that Paul talked about in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. In our workplaces, in our homes, in our leisure time, our reading, our watching, our purchasing, our commitments, our fellowship, whatever decisions, whatever choices that we make, do we do it for the glory of God? Do we do it in such a manner and in such a way that says to people around us, I am a follower of Jesus Christ? We represent our Lord while we're here on this earth, don't we? Everything that we do ought to say, I live for Jesus Christ. Why? Because of His goodness, because of His greatness, and because of what He has done for us. All throughout the book of Colossians, look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12, Colossians chapter 2 and verse 7, chapter 3 verse 15, chapter 4 and verse 2, it emphasizes this idea of thanksgiving. Expressing our gratitude towards Almighty God through Jesus Christ. Jesus is our mediator. He is the one and only one to whom, rather through whom we have access to the Father. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verse 18, Romans chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. From God flows every spiritual blessing. We know that. Ephesians 1 and verse 3, James 1 and verse 17. How thankful we must be to Almighty God for what He has done for us. To Him, we must give all the glory. And that just like His Son Jesus Christ who points us to the Father, we must look to Him for everything that we need in this life. This idea of disappearance. Jesus didn't care about the glory and attention. Brethren, that should be said of us today. As we go through our lives, as we live Christian lives, let us be individuals who don't, carry about, don't care about the glory, don't care about the, care about the praise of men, but who simply do it for the glory and praise of Almighty God. And one of the interesting things as we study throughout Scripture is we get to look at accounts like John chapter 5 and we get to understand and see all of the things within a text like this that maybe we'd normally never ever see. But then I think as we also go through the New Testament, we see a pattern for the plan of salvation too, don't we? Maybe you're here tonight and you aren't a Christian. Maybe you haven't obeyed that plan of salvation. Know that you can do so this evening. You can come forward repenting of your sins. You can confess Christ's precious name before all men. We'll baptize you into water for the remission of those sins. And you can go on your way knowing that your place is in heaven above if you live a faithful life. Or maybe you're here as a Christian, as a New Testament Christian, but your life isn't what it needs to be. Maybe you're not making the right kinds of choices. Your priorities aren't right. Maybe you're doing things like we just talked about for the glory of men, and you understand that you've been stopping people from praising Almighty God, and you want to fix that. Know that you can repent of those things. We can pray for you. As a family, we are here for you. Or maybe you just need the, the encouragement from your brothers and sisters. Maybe life's gotten you down. Whatever you have a need, won't you come? As together we stand and as we sing the invitation song.